There's a lot more to ESG than just the E. It's easy to beat up energy companies on the E. If we're gonna be beating people up at any one time, there's $2 trillion of money laundering going on. Where's the punching the banks for the G part? Well, I don't wanna punch the banks for that, but money laundering is a big deal. So there's a there's needs to be a bit of a trade-off and, and a little bit easing up on you know how, how the punches are flying. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode number 76 coming at you right now as we're winding down 2021 and another great guest added to the slate as we welcome Mr. Jim Mitchell, head of America's oil analyst over at Refinitiv. Great information from Jim, a 30-year oil and gas veteran, no stranger to the renewable game, though, and tremendous insight uh, and some opinions as well uh, from Mr. Mitchell, but not what you might necessarily think from a 30-year oil and gas guy. In fact, he's got some great insight uh, as far as how the energy transition and how both sides can come together. But before we get to that, let's hear, as we do each and every episode around this time, from our very own COO and co-founder, Miss Ann Niemer, Telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Ann Niemer here, co-founder and COO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know everyone has sustainability needs and wants. We want to help you reach your ESG goal. Our goal is to bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both buyers and sellers. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RFP process. Whether you need to procure energy or find an off-taker for a renewable project, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Our other projects include solar or battery storage development, renewable natural gas or responsibly sourced gas, LED lighting, and HVAC efficiency upgrades, or unbundled RECs or RSG certificates, all helping our customers reach their sustainability goals and meeting their ESG needs. Please visit our website at eRenew.net or call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you so much for that, Miss Ann Niemer. As always, you can find out more about the company over at our LinkedIn page and, of course, over at the website as well, eRenew.net. And, of course, stay tuned in early 2022. Why? Because we've got a brand new redesign coming up from the website that we know you're going to love. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. Jim Mitchell, head of America's oil analyst over at Refinitiv, a 30-year veteran, as we said. Lots of great information from him. Just touching on a number of different things, including the importance of oil and gas companies in the energy transition. Why both sides need to work together and what Jim would do to make that happen. Why does Jim think some of the goals and expectations for EVs and net zero are unrealistic? And the viability of hydrogen as a legitimate everyday player in the energy sector and a lot more. It's a great episode, great information from an even greater guy. Here is Mr. Jim Mitchell. Yeah, so I've, I've been a trader for about 20 years, and then I've been an analyst for seven, coming up to eight now. It's given me a very unique perspective on uh, the entire industry and uh, every aspect of it, certainly from uh, the, the men and women out in the field that are literally punching a hole in the ground and pulling this black goopy stuff out to the, the people that are standing on this rocking boat 
when and when it's lightly raining in um, the New Orleans area to literally people at utilities that look at 20 screens and every possible aspect you can think of uh, power generation. It's given me a very unique perspective in the, the quantity and the type of data uh, has changed a great deal, uh, which is, and, and it's going to change again in uh, kind of now through the next probably 10 years. Trading in, in your style is, is a very personal thing. Starting as a chemical engineer at the University of Minnesota, boy, it, it felt right. Uh, I was very comfortable around numbers. Um, I, I didn't graduate with a chemical engineering degree, though I had to switch over to economics because I couldn't spend that much time in a lab uh, every week. Uh, but the, the, the engineering attitude and approach, it worked. It helped me understand the market, you know, getting into the numbers and understanding the detail and the operations and the process. Uh, and, and to be honest, it, it works today. When you first started seeing renewables come on the scene, just kind of your thought process on it versus when you saw it, the evolution of it, and to where you see it at today. So when, when I first uh, saw it of, of any scope, I was at uh, Shell. It was probably 2000, 2001. Shell was starting to invest in some solar and some wind uh, around the world. Um, I was based here in Houston. It appeared to me that, yeah, it looked like a good idea. I didn't expect that they were going to make any money at it. Uh, for a while, and they didn't. But I, I knew that Shell is an energy company, as is um, all of the other big names in this industry. Um, you know, most of the industry knows them as oil companies, uh, but they've been in renewables for decades, uh, and I think that that kind of surprises people. Um, I don't know the exact number for Shell. I I would put it um, into the billions that they've invested in alternative energy whether that's wind or solar or wave energy. Um, you know, Exxon's been doing this LG thing for a while. Um, it's, it's, it's been everywhere and it's been for a long time. I think it's been an evolution based upon, we know that oil and gas are not gonna last forever. To give you some perspective, given current technology, we have about 33 or 34 years left of oil. With that said, there are some reserves that haven't been tapped. Countries like Namibia, who produce zero oil, have a lot. They're just starting to produce oil in the Falkland Islands, so way south. Uh, by Argentina, they got five billion barrels sitting there in the ground waiting to be taken up. Uh, they've produced next to zero. So I suspect that 33, 34 extends out a little bit, but it's not an eternity. When you bring in other types of oil production like oil shale or oil sands, we're looking at more like 160 years. Again, that's that's a long time. As we start to approach that, that 2050-ish area in time, it's going to get a lot more expensive. As we transition to this different type of production that we see with oil shale, that technology exists today. Uh, and there is some uh, oil being produced like that, uh, but it's expensive. And it's expensive to get this black rock out of the ground. It's expensive to actually get oil out of it. Certainly can, uh, but it's going to be a much, much different environment when we get there. So knowing that, these energy companies have known that if, if you want to stay in business, because they all want perpetual, right? They want to pass on their, their BP stock or their Chevron stock to their grandkids, and they want their grandkids working there.
I mean, I don't blame them. I, I worked at Shell for a long time. It's a fantastic company. So is BP and Exxon and Total and P66. They're all great companies to work for. So knowing this, that they know that eventually they're going to have to shift. And they, being in this industry, you know that nothing happens in a year or two or three or five. It takes decades. And it takes decades to establish yourself as a player in the industry and how to profitably produce energy, trade energy, move energy. It takes a long time to develop that. These well, companies you, have known that. If we were to pick a number right now, for the most part, we've been bouncing 20 bucks either side of 50 or $60 pretty regularly in the last decade. We've had some lower, we've had some higher. When we get to that 2050 or 2060 mark, do you think that 50 or $60 standard comes 90 to 100 or 100 plus type number? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a, a lot depends on what the demand looks like uh, when we get out there. If in fact, uh, the industry develops such that um, hybrids develop uh, or uh, fully electric cars develop, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. We could see that $50 oil again. It could be $400. It just yeah. depends on how it is that we get there. Yeah, I think you're 100% right that it all depends on how the electric vehicle takes off or doesn't take off within our society. You know, I know there's a grandiose plans for it, but putting those plans into practicality is not an easy thing to do. It's a sure. lot of infrastructure that needs to be put into place. And, you know, that's the big debate. And it's actually a billion dollar question right now, right? Yeah, probably multi-billion dollar. Yeah, absolutely. And then absolutely. That's, that's just the amount of Tesla stock that was sold in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> I was asked a couple of weeks ago if I thought we were in an energy crisis. And my response was, I don't think we're in an energy crisis as much as we are in an ideology crisis. Um, what's driving a lot of this, and I know you guys saw because you saw my presentation, I put a graph up that put um, that had a couple lines going out to 2050. One was IEA's, um, if we got down to net zero by 2050. And the other one was EIA's opinion on where we would be at 2050 as it relates to oil production. Um, IEA had around 24 million barrels a day of production. EIA had 126 million barrels a day of production. Uh, just for the record, Refinitiv's around 80. So when, when you have that big of a chasm mm -hmm. between um, if, if we go along kind of how we are, which is the, the EIA version, as opposed to if we make draconian cuts, like some of which were talked about at COP26 last week, um, then we get down to the, the level that IEA, uh, I don't think that's possible. So the, the issue then becomes uh, people that are talking about um, what they want as opposed to how it is that we get there. Mm -hmm. And what that's done, unfortunately, in our current environment it's, it's had people dig their heels in on both sides. So neither side is really uh, talking to each other about, well, you can't do that. Well, you can do that if you do that. Um, it's, it's, it's not been like that. And until we get, and this is what I hope, I was hoping that COP26 would do is kind of reset the bar in terms of expectations. Uh, it may have, but I didn't see it. Mm -hmm. And so un, un, until we reset that bar, 
and energy gets way less politicized, um, unfortunately, we're gonna we're gonna keep running into these same issues. If they came to you today and said, "Listen, Jim Mitchell, reset the bar for us. What does it look like to you? What is it?" Stop putting artificial goals and expectations on various things, right? Selling 9 million electric vehicles by 2030 is laughable. We're about 600,000. There's no way we're getting to 9 million. Even if you include hybrid vehicles, which has now been incorporated in, which thank goodness, I think that is, that is absolutely a step that needs to happen. Now, does that help the climate? Yeah, a little. Hybrids produce about 60% of the uh, emissions that a regular internal combustion engine uh, produces. So is it a benefit? Sure. Is it what the the green side wants? No, but it's a it's a fantastic step. But, you know, putting these hurdles out there that we got to sell nine million cars, which is basically half of all vehicles sold in the U.S., it just creates an unreal expectation. And then, you know, others will say, well, if we can sell nine million cars, we got to up the uh, infrastructure. Well, yeah, do, but you know, you're going to put something like 3 million chargers out there. And if, if that's the case, is that really the way that people are going to charge their vehicles? Because most people now do it at home. And if that's the case, what are you going to do with apartments? Or like my first house, which was built in 1946, um, it didn't have the electrical service that that I could even upgrade uh, to to have a Tesla. It's just it, it's just not possible. I'd have to completely rewire the house. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of hurdles uh, out there, and that's just one thing, right? We haven't talked about you know hydrogen vehicles or anything else like that. Uh, there's a whole bunch of hurdles out there, and when when one side is not talking to the other, you're missing a huge value. Uh, the energy industry and the, the engineers that exist in this industry, they're the ones who can solve these problems because they've been solving them for 100 years. You said it as well. You've got renewable folks are dug in, oil and gas folks are dug in. When does this kumbaya happen and how does it happen? That's a great question. and uh, I, I wish I could answer it. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think podcasts and discussions like you guys do um, are very helpful along those lines because I'm gonna distribute this uh, over my network and they're gonna be primarily oil and gas people who are gonna to listen to this and, and most of them uh, know who I am and what I'm about. I'm, I'm very much an all the above energy kind of person. Uh, but then, you know, going along the, the Green Insider um, network that you guys have, um, I don't imagine you talk to a lot of hardcore oil and gas guys like me. So, you know, to hear to hear somebody discuss this, maybe they maybe, you know, hopefully they say, well, maybe they're not all bad. My focus has all been about energy and being able to produce low cost energy. And if whether that's electrons or molecules or something else. Right. I mean, there's there's scientists out there looking at antimatter. And boy, you want to talk about uh, quantities of uh, megajoules. Whew, if, if we could ever figure that out. Where are we at? Where, where's Jim Mitchell at on the hydrogen scale? And, and how realistic is it that this thing can be a viable player in the next five to 10 years? Well, let me first point out, refineries have been using hydrogen for decades, okay. 50, 60, 70 years, a long time. There's, there's an actual hydrogen grid uh, south of Houston where the refineries are. 
And it's literally uh, three or four refineries connected via pipeline that exchange hydrogen. Okay. And it's been there for ever. Uh, well, not ever, a long time. And when, when it goes down, it's a big deal for those refineries. And these are pretty big refineries south of Houston. So, you know, is the technology there? Oh, yeah, of course it is. Um, and it, is is hydrogen being produced? Yeah, it is. And the the most abundant element uh, in the world, it's literally everywhere and in everything. The question then becomes, how do you get it out? How do you transport it? How do you store it? How do you use it? So hydrogen has been used um, as an industrial process for a long, long time, and not just refineries, for other aspects. The economics of that uh, get lost because it's in the economic of the final product, whatever's being produced. Uh, when, when hydrogen starts to make that transition into an energy fuel, it's a little bit different story. Hydrogen is a very unique element um, for, for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, for example, one of them, uh, and, and your guy from Mitsubishi may have touched upon this, if you put hydrogen through a pipe, it eventually will crack that pipe. It's called hydrogen embrittlement. And you know that, that's a technical issue. There's some really, really smart engineers that will figure that out. I have no doubt they'll figure that out. For hydrogen, though, to become an energy component, it has to compete economically and energetically wherever it competes against. So if the, the best way to get hydrogen, and, and people get lost in the colors, um, which I, I think is a little bit ridiculous, but so be it. Um, the best way to get a hydrogen is from natural gas, which means then the cost of that hydrogen is going to be the cost of the natural gas. So everything to get that natural gas out of the ground, get it to the processing point, uh, you know, however it is that you do that, whether it's uh, pyrolysis uh, or um, electrolysis, uh, or whatever process you're using, that's going to be an added cost on to over and above what natural gas is going to be. Um, which then begs the question, why aren't you just using the natural gas and the energy that you were using to get the hydrogen out of the natural gas as energy? So my, my feel on hydrogen is that um, it, there is a place for it in the future. Is it going to be a large place? I don't think so. I think somewhere around 10 to 12 percent um, on a worldwide basis, which is a very deceptive way to put it, because some places it's going to be a much, much bigger percentage. Uh, some places like West Texas, it may not exist at all. There's no reason to because that gas is so cheap out there. Um, so, you know, how does how does that work in cars? Um, California, I believe, has about 50 hydrogen uh, fueling stations now. And Toyota makes a car, I forget the brand, it looks like a, a Corolla, that kind of size car. And, and there's a bunch of people out there that are using it. Uh, with that said, that's being financed by, and not exactly a tax, but a, a cost of meeting the state's uh, low carbon fuel standards. So it's not really standing on its own in terms of profitability, uh, but it's out there and and you know, as you mentioned in, in one of the other uh, questions, you have to get this stuff out there and working to work through some of the details. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you are so far behind that no one's gonna take you credibly. Uh, once you get out there and you start working through some of these details, that's when uh, 
people are going to start to look at it and whether they're whether they're the green side or the energy side or the oil side or whatever they're going to look at it more from an operational standpoint and the the two questions is it going to exist economically and is it going to exist energetically and if it can do those two it'll be there and if it can't it probably won't what's the us's role in the energy transition as you see it being an american citizen and and being in the energy industry and in houston um, I, I'm, I'm fully a believer that, that we need to lead in everything we do, uh, which I, I, I believe me, I get the arrogance of that, but, um, in, in Houston, we lead the energy business in the Americas and, you know, a little tip to Calgary. They've, they've done a great job and, and have outstanding ESG in Canada, which we may or may not have time to get to, but, um, I, it, it is my opinion that the U S has the ability to lead. We have the technical power, we have the technical expertise, we have the assets to do it, we should lead. Now, with that said, economically and energetically, we don't necessarily need it like a, a country like the UK does or uh, Japan or Greenland or Iceland, where, where Japan and uh, I think it was Greenland um, saying that they're going to be the first fully uh, green energy economy. I hope they do. Neither one of those, Japan or Greenland, has native resources, native hydrocarbons. So they have a much, much bigger need than we do uh, in the U.S. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Um, certainly the U.S. is going to be, if, if we're not leading, we're going to be in the forefront. And, and I fully expect that Texas will be standing right up there as we're the biggest wind producer in the U.S. So it's definitely going to be interesting. For a data-driven guy like yourself, where are you at on ESG? So Refinitiv does do scoring. I think we have 456 different metrics and we have it on our system. And it's literally um, every single public company everywhere in the world uh, we have a score for. And, and I think if you remember from my presentation, I brought up the London Stock Exchange, uh, who I work for. Uh, it, it's one thing to rate uh, a stock exchange like the London Stock Exchange it's a little bit different when you are out uh, working in the elements every day because typically the only time I'm outside is going to get a latte in the morning. <laughs> I don't have to work in 110 degrees uh, when it's really humid and I'm trying to put pipes together uh, and I got the sun beating down on me uh, or, or God forbid in the North Sea where you know the waves feel like ice uh, <laughs> before they're even frozen. I don't have to work in that. So it's a it's a really distorted perception when you look at uh, an exchange company like I work for relative to uh, what like Shell is doing in the North Sea. So I don't think that part has been kind of taken care of yet. I do like the fact that there are a bunch of people trying. Mm -hmm. It's an important thing. It's an important regardless of, of what industry you're in or, or what your beliefs or what your political stance is. It's an important thing for people and, and moving forward. And I hope there gets to be standards. I don't know what they're going to be. Uh, I'm certainly not one uh, that's going to be on that committee. But eventually, I think there will be standards. Once you get people talking to each other a little bit more, COP26 was a, a lot about mobilizing finance. Uh, which is fantastic. Finance is a, is definitely a part of it, but there's an operational part that was missed on that, and and that that's one of the failings I think that 
COP26 had is they very specifically excluded energy companies, people with the understanding of operationally how to do this. Uh, so that's one track. The other track is there's a lot more to ESG than just the E. It's easy to beat up energy companies on the E. If we're going to be beating people up at any one time, there's $2 trillion of money laundering going on. Where's the punching the banks for the G part? Well, I, I don't want to punch the banks for that, but money laundering is a big deal. So there's a there's needs to be a bit of a trade-off and, and a little bit easing up on you know how, how the punches are flying. Also, uh, along that same line, I've been in the energy industry for a long time, and I've been part of the S part uh, in a bunch of different companies. Uh, at Refinitiv, for example, after Hurricane Harvey, um, Refinitiv allowed me two days off to plant native grasses mm -hmm. around Houston, which was fantastic. At Shell, we went into Third Ward, which is a, a relatively smaller, impoverished section of Houston right off of downtown. And we helped paint and uh, kind of almost rebuild the attic of, of, of one lady's house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Shell footed the bill for all of it. There were no, no cameras there, no microphones. Shell didn't do it for a sound bite. It's, it's who the people in this industry are. You have any thoughts on education being part of the S in ESG? Yeah, um, yeah, and, and, and I'm with you. And, and, and from my perspective, I don't really care who gets credit. I think you know, getting this knowledge out there is helpful. And it's helpful for you guys, it's helpful for me, it's helpful for our industry. Uh, so from that, fantastic. Now, um, every major oil company in Houston, uh, and not even major, um, all of them are um, big proponents of the S part of it. And it, it goes so far beyond energy. Uh, a, a gas blender, and, and I won't mention their name, contributes um, computers, for goodness sakes. And that is, it has nothing to do with energy, but it's, it's uh, families that can't afford computers uh, for the kids, especially during um, uh, 2000 when, when everybody was at home. Uh, some kids didn't have laptops to do their homework. Right. That was phenomenal. That has nothing to do with anything other than being a part of the community. Um, every major company is involved in, in Houston is involved with the University of Houston's Energy Center. It's phenomenal. And they're given massive money. And top executives are going there and, and speaking with the kids. I think I have, of my the six analysts on my staff, I may be the only one who doesn't have a degree from the University of Houston. I recruit from there and I'm, I'm recruiting another person. I'm going to make a job offer today. Um, they have a phenomenal system and it's being driven by the, the president of the University of Houston is phenomenal. She is absolutely amazing. Uh, but then the interaction that the university has with the energy players in Houston is absolutely astounding. I haven't seen anything like it. it. When I went to the University of Minnesota about a thousand years ago, and there were some of the big um, corporates uh, giving money, and most of that was to put their name on a building. Uh, this is far beyond that. This is this is executives going in and doing lectures, and and I did as well. I gave lectures on uh, shipping and what we're doing in AI and machine machine learning, and um, the young people ate it up enough that, that two of them wanted to come work for me. 
for the folks that don't know, just give us a quick, you know, 30, 45 seconds on what Refinitive is and kind of what... What can what, what what can a company like Refinitive do, or maybe what you guys are already doing to you know aid, support, push forward the energy transition, and what's kind of on Jim Mitchell's uh, radar for twenty twenty two and beyond? So, uh, oh, three things in there. So, Refinitive, who are we? Uh, we are a big big data company. Um, most of the money at Refinitive is made on the equity and debt and foreign exchange side. So all of the debt, in, all of the data involving uh, trading, uh, pre-trade, the execution of the trade and the post-trade aspect of that. Um, but then we also have a wealth management side that's pretty big. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm in the commodity side. And what we do is supply data analysis on our platform. Um, that's who Refinitiv is. London Stock Exchange is obviously a, a big uh, equity and debt stock exchange uh, based in London. Uh, they bought us the beginning of this year. So um, we are everywhere. Our CEO was at uh, COP26 speaking about finance. We have a massive amount of information on green bonds, um, green ETFs, private equity that invest in um in green companies. Um, and then of course we have people like me on the commodity side who are, who are talking about the, the operational, the financial, uh, the, the kind of the knowledge space on the energy side. So, you know, what I think we do really well, other than obviously the data and platform is um, we're, we're part of the narrative. And, you know, whether it's, whether it's the executives in London or New York uh, or, or me in Houston, um, we all strike a very similar tone in that we're all in this together. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't really matter in terms of which country you're from, because I think we're in 120 countries worldwide um, and each country is a little bit different, but we're all breathing the air. So we all have to live with whatever it is that our decisions are. From a work perspective, it's, it's expand our energy transition data. We have a partner, um, IIR Energy, based in Sugarland, Texas, which is southwest suburb of... Uh, Did you say Houston. IIR? Um, IIR, Industrial, Industrial yeah. Information Resources. Okay. IIR. We're, we're working with them. They have literally the assets. They're into the contractors who are building some of the energy transition assets so their job is to kind of put together the the asset list and the, the literally the engineering details it's our job to go through the the implications of where these uh, assets are and the implications that they will have on the market um, that's from the work perspective my personal perspective which i hold very dear uh, as i mentioned my son is a baseball player uh, he's a redshirt freshman i'm really looking forward to that Thank you so much for that, Mr. Jim Mitchell. You can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and eRenew.net. And if you listen to us over at Apple Podcasts, and we know that a lot of you do, give us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise you learn more about renewable energy from the podcast than you knew about it before you stopped by. Don't miss next week's episode as well as we'll welcome to the program the new Executive Director of the North American Energy Markets Association. That's NEMA for those of you scoring at home, Mr. Tim Berrigan. And, of course, we'll have a great send-off for the outgoing Executive Director 
character and just an all-around great human being, Mr. Steve Shepard. As always, thank you to everybody who helps make the Green Insider possible. Shout out to our leader, our co-founder, our CEO, the man in charge, one Mr. Mike Deemer. Without him, none of this goes. So a huge shout out to him and Al Roger and the entire eRenewable team. And of course, also a shout out to all the listeners and guests, because without you, it wouldn't be possible. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier.